Oh, amen. It's so great to fellowship with one another, isn't it? You know, we come together on Sunday to glorify and worship the Lord and then also to encourage and bless one another with conversation. It's awesome. It was just good seeing everybody out there just doing that. That's community. Last week, uh, CB brought a message on the tough and tender Jesus where he preached the difficult on the difficult topic of divorce. And if you have not yet had the opportunity to listen to this sermon, I would encourage you to do so. You can go to our website and, and hear it. CB, you did an excellent job last week, so very thankful for you and for all you do here at Christ Community. Your, your faithfulness to the Word of God uh, has been a blessing to all of us. So thank you, brother. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. We're continuing our series In the Gospel of Matthew, the title of my message this morning is Jesus, the Greatest Treasure. Jesus, the Greatest Treasure. And today we'll be looking at the historical account of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. So let's start reading in verse 16. Matthew writes, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to read your word together. There are places and Christians around the world who can't even read the word publicly can't even gather together to read your word and have to hide and and gather together in secret knowing that it could be even their last day on earth as they gather to to read and to worship you. So Lord, we're thankful that we live in a place where we can do this. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather here today to be encouraged and edified and challenged by your word. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach us your ways, O God, and embolden us to be proclaimers of Jesus in the world around us. We thank you, Lord, that we have that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. In my opinion, which doesn't mean much, but in my opinion, this has to be one of the saddest stories in the New Testament. Yet this story has continued throughout the centuries as this rich young ruler 
is the representation of mankind. His mistakes and errors that he has made and his assumptions before Jesus are the same that countless millions of people make every day. So mankind is, in a sense, this young man. Many times throughout history, we have seen or have read about people taking an interest in Jesus. They've read books about Jesus. They may even picked up the Bible to learn about who this man was. They've studied. They may even go to churches to hear more about this Jesus, but they never came to a genuine conversion experience with Christ. They never had repentance take place. It was never an entrusting of their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but yet they're very interested in knowing about this Jesus. And when we look at Mark and Luke's account of this encounter, we read that this is a man who approached Jesus with great urgency, with great interest. There was great admiration in his eyes toward Jesus. There was this view that Jesus' words were important. And so he approaches Jesus. And what's interesting in the context, he approaches Jesus in front of everybody. The Pharisees, children, adults, everyone. And let's look at verse 16, which brings us to our first point, the request. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do? To have eternal life. Now, Mark records in his gospel that this man comes and kneels before Jesus. Luke, in his gospel, reveals to us that he was a ruler, probably a ruler in a synagogue. And so it's quite a surprising sight to behold. A devout religious leader who's wealthy, who's prominent, who's influential, he publicly comes and bows before Jesus. Respecting Jesus' authority as a teacher, this young man comes to him and asks how he can enter into heaven. And he's under the assumption that he had to do something in order to be saved. Like there was some sort of pious achievement that he had to obtain in order to dwell with God forever. Now Mark records that the young man said to Jesus, good teacher. So if you were to combine the two gospel accounts together, the young man approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's something very telling about this. Something very interesting. He calls Jesus good. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. It goes on to say in Romans 3.23, which is a very popular verse amongst us Christians, what does that say? You all can read it out loud. Go ahead. What's it say? Right. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if every man that has ever walked on the face of this earth 
has sinned and fallen short of God's glory and Jesus is good, what does this say about Jesus? That he is God. It's a very intolerant message today in a world that is so pluralistic. I remember ministering to a Muslim man in Dallas, Texas once. And I walked up to him. He was on the street and I was evangelizing during Ramadan. And he says, why are you here? I said, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Because I know who Jesus is. He's a good prophet. I said, no, Jesus is God. He says, no, he was not God. He was a good prophet. I said, no, sir, Jesus is God. And he started cursing at me and swearing at me. And I said to him, sir, why don't you just kill me right here? He said, what? Why would I do that? I said, because I just blasphemed according to your religion, which is worthy of death. And I'm not doing this to provoke you at all, but if you're really mad at me for saying Jesus is God, be a true Muslim and kill me. He says, I can't do that here. I said, I know. But if I was in Saudi Arabia, if I was in Iraq or in Afghanistan, and I was having this conversation with you, and I were to tell you that Jesus is God, you would not hesitate to kill me. Jesus is God. Period. You see, Jesus was alive before he was born of the Virgin Mary. The Bible talks about his pre-existence. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. The second person of the Trinity. The Bible also talks about his deity. Colossians 2.9 For in Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that is why we see Jesus' reply in verse 19. Let's look there. Point two, the response. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look at the first part of Jesus' response here. He says, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Jesus knew that this young man had no idea that he was conversing with God. The man thought he was being courteous to the rabbi. But Jesus, who is the wisest of the wise, picked up on the man's compliment as a way of focusing the man's attention on his own lack of goodness. 
The standard of goodness, brothers and sisters, is not coming on Sunday morning and setting up chairs. That's good. That's nice. But that's not the standard of goodness. It's not serving in children's ministry. That's nice. That's good. But that's not the standard of goodness. It's not going to an abortion clinic and and preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus. That's good, but that's not the standard of goodness. The standard of goodness is God. And like I said earlier, we all fail to measure up to the standard of his glorious righteousness. Yet mankind has a hard time seeing that. We think we're good. We think we're born good. We think that if we do good things, we will have favor with God. I grew up thinking I was a good person. My motto was, good people go to heaven and murderers go to hell. I grew up thinking that if you don't go to church, if you don't go to holy confession, if you don't go to holy communion... Hey, if you don't even go to Catholic school, you're evil and are probably going to hell. And if you're in the Latino culture like me, if you don't go to church, especially Roman Catholic church, you are really evil. I was taught that Martin Luther was of of the devil. And that's how I believed he was until I became a Christian. Yet the Apostle Paul tells us that we judge ourselves by ourselves. Romans chapter 2, 1 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. You see, God doesn't judge us by grading us on some curve, comparing us with our neighbors. He knows who is good and who's not good, according to the standard of his holy character. And guess what? No one can reach that standard apart from Christ. And so it is pretty pointless to attempt to determine goodness by the standards of the world. Then our Lord goes on to say, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man says, which ones? To which Jesus replies, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus doesn't push aside the young man's question. What he does is he tackles it head on. God's law is the standard against which we all must measure up. But as we have already heard, there's no way we can measure up to God's law. Conformity to the character of God entails perfect obedience. And it is obvious that it is impossible to be perfectly obedient to God. Mankind fails to meet that standard. This means that apart from God's enabling grace, we cannot keep God's commandments. And that enabling a grace, a grace occurs during the sanctification process of a Christian. I have a friend who 
very smart man, and he taught a teaching on sanctification once. And he said to me, he goes, you know, I'm not sinless, but I sin less as I grow more in Jesus. And one day, I will be sinless when I'm with the Lord. And I thought, you know, that's really good. I'm going to have to steal that. I sin less as I grow more in Christ. But you know what? There's something called indwelling sin. There's a battle raging within us, right? We've got to fight every day. But we have the Lord as Christians empowering us to say no to sin. As a matter of fact, John the Apostle wrote and he said, My dear children, my little children, I wish that you'd not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. So there you see who Jesus is to the Christian. He's our advocate. Because there are going to be times when we stumble. There are going to be times when we get our eyes off of Jesus and, and, and sin gets the best of us. Now, do we sin so that grace may much more abound? Heaven forbid, no. We don't habitually go on sinning just because we want to. No, the Holy Spirit convicts us. But there'll be times when we stumble but we have an advocate with the Father. And we can approach the throne of God with confidence, knowing that Jesus is our advocate. He intercedes for us. He's our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So this rich young ruler has absolutely no understanding of true goodness. And Jesus shows him this. And in addressing his question, Jesus shows him that the standard of goodness is God himself. And this has implications for the rich young ruler. First, he must either possess within himself a righteousness that is perfectly conformed to God, or he must somehow acquire a righteousness from outside himself of someone who could meet all of God's requirements. And here is where the good news is. Jesus satisfied all of the law's demands. And now those who repent and become children of God, he gives perfect righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is at the heart of of salvation. When we say we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we do not mean that faith is a good work that makes up for all the bad works. Saying we're justified by faith alone simply means that through Christ alone, we are justified. The only righteousness by which we will be declared righteous in the eyes of God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we call the great exchange. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, God can view us as righteous in Christ because of imputation. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are counted as righteous. That is the perfect righteousness earned by Jesus is credited to us. In turn, our sins are credited to Jesus who made satisfaction for them by bearing the wrath of God 
against his people on the cross. Jesus bore the horrible weight of the sin of the elect. He bore our sin. He took it upon himself. He became that offering, that perfect offering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. All the treason, all the rebellion, every sin that you, saint of God, has ever have ever committed fell upon his shoulders. And he who the sun sets free is free indeed. As, as we heard today from that prophetic word, there is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are now in Christ Jesus. We no longer stand in the wrath of God. We're no longer sinking in the wrath of God. But that wrath was absorbed by Christ. That gives us reason to rejoice today, saints. Unlike the unbeliever. Who still carries the wrath of God upon him. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness. Romans chapter 1. But he too if he repents, can be free from the wrath of the Father. And so until we understand that we have no goodness of our own to present before God, I can't go to God and say, God, you know, when I was eight years old, I visited Quebec with my family and I was made to crawl up marble stairs on my knees And every time I was on those stairs on my knees to pray a prayer of penance and finally got to the top, I can't go to God with that good work, good work and say, wasn't that pleasing to you? Can I come in now? I think of all of those religious people out there that are doing all these good things, feeding the poor, helping the homeless. And I'm not saying those aren't good things. Those are good things, but doing it because they think that's going to get them into heaven. Spending every aspect of their being helping others. But they're not doing it. They're not doing it because of the grace of God that that makes them saved. They're doing it because they think that's how God is going to be pleased. And he'll say, come on in. You did this. You did this. You did this. Come in. No, he's going to say, you, did you repent? Did you entrust your life to the lordship of my son? Did you cry out to God for mercy? And they're going to say, well, I thought that I just had to open an orphanage and feed the hungry and serve children in children's ministry. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. If we think we can go to heaven by being good, then we're gravely mistaken. And Jesus answered the rich young ruler by going straight to the Ten Commandments. But he starts with what is called the second table of the law, which are the commands about how we should live in relation to our fellow human beings. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. Of course, this religious man was very familiar with these words. But he was missing the point here. He wasn't seeing that these very well-known commandments and others like them in the scriptures could not provide eternal life. If a person was able to perfectly keep the commands, then he'd be perfect. And there's only one that's perfect. Point number three, the reaction, verse 20. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? So the young man has a follow-up question for Jesus. He says, what do I lack here? I think the young ruler really felt a sense of relief. He believed he kept these commands. He tells Jesus that he had learned the commands of God when he was little and had been faithful to keep them ever since. John MacArthur once wrote, Mosaic commands were not given as means for humanly achieving God's standard of righteousness, but were given as pictures of his righteousness. The law was given to show men how impossible it is for them to live up to his standards of righteousness in their own power. Obedience to the law is always imperfect because the human heart is imperfect. God is patient. That is one of his communicable attributes. Jesus could have easily rebuked this man. He could have said, what did you just say? You, you haven't kept any of them. And even right now, you're not keeping them. You're not being truthful. You haven't kept them, and you said you have. That's a lie. Or he could have said, Don't you know that when you become angry with your brother or hate your brother, you violate the commandment against murder? Or when you lust in your heart, you break the command concerning adultery? You know what is sad? There are people all over the world right now who really think they're keeping God's commands perfectly. They really think they're good people. And yet for a work to be defined as good biblically, not only must it outwardly conform to the law of God, it must be internally motivated by a love for God. And apart from Christ, there is no internal love for God from a person. Because the Bible says that before Christ, we're hostile toward God, enemies of God. Not only are we enemies of God, but God is our enemy as well. But yet he loves his enemies. See, God tells us we need to love our enemies. Why would he tell us to love our enemies if he didn't love his? He's consistent when we're so inconsistent. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. 
No one has ever loved God perfectly. So we see here the patience of God displayed with this man. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his assumption that he was able to keep the law. Mark, in his recording of the conversation, states that when the young man said this, Jesus looked at him with compassion and loved him. He loved him. So here we see the compassion of the great shepherd. He has compassion on the lost. He has compassion on the wandering. He has compassion on the blind of spirit. He has compassion on the confused. Christian, what is your response internally and externally to a family member or a person you know who says they're going to heaven because they're good people? Do you become self-righteous and coldly rebuke the person for being wrong? Do you sarcastically laugh at them at the first response? Or do you show compassion toward them because you know they're lost sinners? You know that there is no one born good and are burdened in your heart to show them Jesus, to present to them the gospel. What they need is a triumph of grace. What they have is slavery and bondage and wrath. And so Jesus is our example. He shows us in this text how to respond to the person that you come into contact with who says, I'm a good person. I should go to heaven. I have kept God's commands. Right here is our proof text on how to care for people who think they're good people. Final point. The reality. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, Jesus is not saying that everyone in the entire world must sell everything they have in order to go to heaven. Instead, what he's doing is he's pointing to something, he is pinpointing an issue in the heart of the man. He's he's placing his finger on that main issue. You see, the man was in love. He was very much in love. But he wasn't in love with God. He was in love with money. And that love that he had for money was affecting his obedience to all other commandments. He said that he had kept the command since he was a boy, yet God says, 
Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. James 2.10 Command number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Yet money was his God. His wealth was his idol. That is what he worshipped. And what this man needed to do was to forsake his idol and follow Jesus so as to gain a better treasure. One that would never rust, decay, or fade away. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His response is very interesting because he didn't get angry at Jesus. He didn't yell at Jesus. He didn't try to defend himself, saying that he tithed and he did all this stuff in the temple with his money to give to God. He didn't try to do any of those things. He had a different response. His heart was broken. He had rushed up to Jesus to find out how to go to heaven. But when Jesus told him what he had to do to turn from his sin, forsake his idolatry, he was sad because he couldn't do it. Tragic story. D.A. Carson wrote, Absolute allegiance to Jesus with humility of a child is essential to salvation. The condition Jesus now imposes not only reveals the man's attachment to money, but shows that all of his formal compliance with the law is worthless because none of it entails absolute surrender. And that's what God is looking for. That is what God is looking for. This man walked away from Jesus. He rejected the greatest treasure he could ever have. He left his soul and his savior behind. This type of thing happens every day in our world. Every day, people come into contact with Jesus through us as we proclaim the gospel. And many times, they walk away because they're not willing to completely surrender their lives to him. They leave Jesus behind. They leave the greatest treasure behind. If you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus, you're very interested in him, but you never repented What earthly treasure are you holding on to? What idol has the enemy used to blind your eyes that you cannot see the preciousness of Jesus? Won't you ask God to help you? Won't you cry out to God for mercy? He looks upon you and he loves you.
acknowledge that Jesus is more than a rabbi, more than a prophet, that he is God, the risen Savior. Cry out to him. Renounce your sins and trust in him as Lord. We all have broken every single command given by God. And therefore, no one is good enough to go to heaven. It is only by grace, through faith, that you can be saved. And this is not a work of your own doing, but a work of God, so that he gets glory for it. If you're bound up in good works, may what the word of God says free you today. That it is by grace through faith that you can be saved. It is not a work of your own doing, but a work of God. He does the work. He did the work on Calvary. He said it is finished. He bore the wrath. He took the shame so that we can have relationship with the Father, so that we can be reconciled with the Father, so that we would no longer be at enmity with God, so that we would no longer be hostile to God, hating him in our hearts, but we would be adopted as sons of God, able to commune with God for all eternity. Unbeliever today, won't you repent and receive Christ, the greatest treasure of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your law, which shows us how impossible it is for us to perfectly obey them. Yet in Christ and through Christ, we have been given grace that enables us to obey you. Yet we recognize that our hearts are imperfect and that we do stumble. Thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who intercedes for us, our advocate, the one who prays and pleads on our behalf the one who purchased us. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not a Christian, you know, for you know the hearts of men. If there is anyone here who is not a Christian, but who thinks they're good enough to go to heaven, would you please open their eyes to see their sinfulness, that there is only one perfectly good And his name is Jesus. And would you please bless them with the gifts of faith and repentance so they may be free from the tyranny of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, well, Feel free to lounge around a bit and enjoy each other's fellowship. And I'll be up here if anybody wants to come and needs prayer. I'm going to make myself available to you.